Hey there, Mark Ryder, NFP's Head of Innovation here. Before you get started with the Compliance Corner podcast, I wanted to let you know about a new podcast we'll be launching in the upcoming weeks entitled Innovation Conversations. Innovation Conversations will be interviews with leaders of the various startups we are sourcing through NFP's Innovation Lab and will give you a great opportunity to hear from true game changers. Be on the lookout for more information in the weeks to come. Now, back to your regularly scheduled program. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon. And we are attorneys with NFP and Benefits Compliance, and we bring to you different topics related to health reform or just general benefits compliance uh, issues that we get in from our clients. Today, we're going to look at uh, some discussion points concerning the election, the midterm elections. And so with that, Chase, let's just jump right in. What were the results of the midterm elections? Right. So most of uh, most people are familiar with what happened. And actually, there are still a few races out there they're still counting votes on. So um, obviously, some midterm elections unsettled still, even a week later. Uh, but what we do know is Republicans uh, were able to retain control over the Senate, while Democrats were able to wrestle control away from the Republicans in the House of Representatives. So for our purposes of kind of what's going on with legislation and how the administration might be acting uh, when it comes to compliance issues, that leaves a split Congress. And obviously that can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your perspective politically. Right. Um, But the House is going to have a little bit more oversight over a Republican White House. They're going to have more of an ability to thwart legislation coming out of the Senate, uh, since it obviously takes both sides to tango. So it just depends on how things go, but definitely a change from the full-blown Republican-controlled government we've seen over the last two years. So let's bring this down to the level, or up to the level, I should say, of our clients and the employers. What does this mean for employers and specifically group health plan um, and compliance? So let's start with the ACA. Was there any change in the midterm elections that could impact uh, the ACA going forward? Yeah, so nothing earth-shattering right away, but there are a few things to consider. First, because the Democrats now control the House, it's difficult to imagine uh, Republicans having any success at reviving their ACA repeal and replace efforts. Uh, But many had thought that if if Republicans remained in control of both sides of Congress, that they'd revive that idea of repealing and and coming up with some type of replacement for the ACA. So that looks like less of a a go for now. Also, perhaps one thing to keep an eye on is employer reporting. And this is the dreaded 1094 and 1095C forms that employers have been filling out for the past several years, going back to 2016, reporting on 2015 compliance, and that's just been ongoing each year. It's right around the corner now for employers due in January 2019, reporting on 2018 compliance. Uh, On that, though, there does appear to be bipartisan support on simplified reporting. Uh, Just the idea that there perhaps will be something more simple down the road. The bill that has actually been introduced on this, um, which was actually last year, it's called the Common Sense Reporting Act of 2017. And its description states that it amends Section 65 and 6056 of the Internal Revenue Code. That's where the requirements are found in the code to file these forms uh, to streamline current employer requirements by establishing a voluntary prospective reporting system to report general employee information. And it does include in forms 1094 and 1095C. So perhaps those forms will still be involved. 
But just the idea that, hey, let's make this a little bit easier. Maybe we file one form at the beginning of the year saying, yes, we are planning on complying with this law and, um, and then working out on the back end maybe where employees weren't offered coverage or the coverage wasn't affordable and those employees have gone to an exchange and qualified for a premium tax credit. That's really driving the penalties under the employer mandate. It's driving uh, qualification and eligibility for premium tax credits themselves. And so maybe simplifying that process for employers, uh, I think everybody would probably like that. And Especially the, those employers that have received a penalty letter. That's for right. 2015 and 2016. And a lot of those penalty letters have resulted from simple errors on 1094 and 1095C, uh, checking the wrong indicator code saying, no, I did not offer to you uh, 70% or 95% in later years on the 1094C. So just basic reporting errors, maybe some of that would be easier to comply with here if it's a simplified reporting form. So we'll have to wait and see where that one goes, but definitely some bipartisan support there. We've also heard lots of bipartisan support on repeal of the Cadillac tax, and there are a few bills in Congress that have been introduced on that. So those are kind of two areas where we could maybe see some bipartisan movement on legislation that I think most employers would be pretty pleased with. So aside from legislation, I know that there's this lawsuit that's hanging out there that could impact the ACA again going forward, and that's Texas v. the United States. Um, can you speak to that lawsuit, and where, where are we standing with that lawsuit right now? Yeah, so this is an outstanding case that may pose some interesting issues. Really quick as a background, to understand this case, we have to look back all the way to when the ACA was enacted. The ACA includes the individual mandate, which is a requirement for all of us as U.S. citizens to have health insurance coverage or pay a penalty. This was challenged in the courts um, right a few years after the ACA was enacted. The Supreme Court ruled that, yes, this is constitutional. Congress does have the ability to tax uh, its citizens. And so. And that's really how they found it constitutional, was under the taxing authority. Exactly. This was not the government forcing you to make a choice in health care. This was the government uh, implementing a tax if you didn't choose to have health care. So, yeah, via the taxing authority, Congress is okay to have this. So it was held constitutional. But last year, at the end of the year, uh, Congress passed a tax reform law that repeals the penalty tax beginning in 2019 under the individual mandate. So uh, beginning in 2019, we can all forego insurance coverage. We will not have to pay that penalty tax associated with the individual mandate. As a result of that, Republicans saw an opportunity here. Well, that was the reason that the, the uh, Supreme Court said that the ACA and the individual mandate were constitutional is because of this tax. Now the tax is not in there. And so that means the ACA becomes unconstitutional again because that was the basis for the, its constitutionality. So um, 20 state attorneys general, including Texas, filed this suit, and that's why you have the name Texas v. the U.S. in there. Um, Got to love the great state of Texas, right? That's right. Uh, getting its name all over. Uh, Democrats, uh, uh, attorney generals from 16 states plus D.C. were allowed to inter intervene to defend the ACA. And so that's really the uh, two parties here, and it's interesting because it's attorneys general right, that are getting involved here. Oral arguments were heard in this case back in September. And so we're kind of 
on hold until the court figures out what it wants to do. But one interesting part coming out of this um, is the administration, the Department of Justice. Um, they are obviously we have a Republican administration, Republican leaning Department of Justice. They agree that at least part of the ACA is or should be unconstitutional. Specifically, they've said that the ACA's individual mandate is unconstitutional and that other ACA provisions are inseverable from that. Those include community rating, guaranteed issue, the ban on pre-existing condition exclusions, and discrimination based on health status. So, yeah, I mean, let's let's just unpack that for just a second. So the the individual mandate, um, the the idea behind it was that if carriers are going to be required to open their doors to anyone who wants coverage, uh, without uh, taking health status into account, the individual mandate helps balance that risk pool by bringing more people in who are healthy. And so even though the carriers have to take on anyone who's sick, and not uh, rate it accordingly. And not rate their products accordingly, they will get all of these uh, healthy individuals in as well. So the individual mandate was deemed necessary for all of these other uh, provisions that were requiring carriers to uh, guarantee issue and to um, and, and so forth. So, right. So a perfect explanation of how the DOJ is saying, and a lot of people believe that. The rest of the ACA is inseverable from the individual mandate. It's like a Jenga puzzle. If you pull the individual mandate, that's the main Jenga piece holding the whole tower together. Right. At least that's the argument. So essentially, this is a little bit of a conflict here for the DOJ. Normally, they're the governmental entity that's charged with going after those who don't follow federal law. Um, In this situation, they're saying they're essentially not going to defend the law or at least these parts of the law. Um, So... um, their DOJ's in a little bit of a precarious situation, at least until that law, the ACA, is changed by Congress or a court renders a verdict on its constitutionality. And that's kind of where we are in this situation. Uh, but it definitely leaves the ACA in a pre- precarious position as well, particularly in this case. So a, a DOJ that's kind of half-heartedly interested in its defense. And so it's really coming down to these Democratic attorneys general they're the ones mounting a defense in the case here. I will say that in those states, they could certainly enact laws that would, um, you know, be similar to what the ACA requires. So any state can has the ability and authority to act enact laws um, if, if it was to go away. Right. So you start thinking, okay, what if the court does rule this unconstitutional? That is definitely one thing that might happen. States will say, we want to have our own individual mandate, and residents in that state will have to follow the same rules, essentially, as they had under the ACA. We know Massachusetts had this before the ACA, uh, Romney care up there in in Massachusetts. So getting back to this split Congress and maybe thinking about what might happen here if the court comes down on the side of the Republicans and the ACA is rendered uh, unconstitutional, there are two bills, one in the House and one in the Senate that have been unveiled that seek to retain the prohibition on pre-existing condition exclusions And so that's really the one that seems to be the biggest hot button issue out there. And has bipartisan support. And has bipartisan support. So one thing to consider, though, when we're talking bipartisan support, how would Democrats react to that? Would they support it, this idea of putting back in pre-existing condition exclusion prohibitions uh, because it's a part of the ACA that was popular? They agree with it from a, a political perspective. 
or would they oppose it because now that they've started this um, argument with the Republicans, they don't want to support something that um, is viewed as taking away what was in their law and now putting it back. So that will be interesting. Um, we would hope that because it's so popular and because it's so helpful for those that have pre-existing conditions that they would go along with it. Right. And again, this is a scenario where four steps down a, a hypothetical here, but it is something interesting uh, to think about. So thinking of other types of legislation that we may be able to get through, um, you know, a divided Congress, let's let's talk about prescription and medical tourism. It's We, we hit on that last week on our podcast. Um, what are your thoughts on, on importing drugs? Yeah, so last podcast, a quick plug for that. Suzanne did an amazing job uh, Thank you, Chase. Out, outlining uh, some of the issues on medical tourism. And we talked about this arrangement in Utah where employees are sent down to San Diego to cross the border into Tijuana to purchase a three-month supply of drugs for personal use, obviously bringing them back into the United States. We talked in more detail about the uh, non-enforcement policy if those drugs are for personal use and generally limited to a three-month supply. So perhaps there's um, a legal or at least a non-enforcement policy there protecting the legality of that. But it does raise the issue overall. What This seems to be talked about more, and um, prescription drugs is at the center of that, prescription drug prices. So Republicans in the White House, at least in discussions and, and what we're hearing, they seem particularly interested in tackling prescription prices overall. Uh, Democrats are always interested in consumer rights and in things that might help drive down health care costs. I think most people are interested in that. So perhaps... That's somewhere congressional Republicans and Democrats can find common ground, trying to get pharmaceutical prescription companies to list prices, be more transparent, those types of rules. We may see more of that. So I know one area that we would not see common ground on is single payer or Medicare for all. And that that was obviously a topic that's been brought up um, and seems to have gained some ground on with the Democrats. But where do we stand right now after the midterm elections on that issue? So, yeah, this has been an interesting one to watch through the last election cycle and through the midterms. Um, nearly all the candidates that ran on that Medicare for all or single payer at its most extreme sort of version, they all lost. And so it doesn't seem like that is going to be a, the way that a lot of Democrats are going to want to run at least their election platform on. Um, it seems like it's, it should be a more moderate version of that. And so uh, the majority of the newly elected Democrats, so the ones that did win, um, they did not support that Medicare for All program. They were a little bit more moderate in their approach there, more focused on keeping the ACA and Obamacare in place and making sure that the prohibition on pre-existing conditions remains. Those were kind of the bigger sticking points, I think, for voters, more popular, and maybe getting to this idea of uh, rather than Medicare for All or a single payer, more of a Medicare for more, which is kind of what you explained in our podcast a few weeks ago, trying to explain the education when people are talking about single payer and Medicare for all. It's a kind of a spectrum there of, of um, trying to help those that need it in the individual market and expanding maybe some of the programs that we already have there rather than going to this extreme version of universal health care. Universal health care. Yes, I don't think the issue is going away, but it, it right. has been uh, damp dampened a bit with this midterm election. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. We're definitely going to hear about it in the next uh, presidential elections in 2020. Um, so we don't 
It's not gone, but dampened is a great way to say it. If you're looking at states that have tried single-payer, uh, just a reminder that there was a referendum in Colorado on a single-payer system two years ago. That was a result of legislation that went through Colorado establishing a single-payer system, but then it got too expensive. Uh, but that referendum failed 80-20. So Colorado was one of those states that was really high on the idea overall and enacted legislation, and yet when it came right down to voter support, wasn't quite there. I, I do hear that it's gonna they're gonna try to revise that again in Colorado, and obviously there's interest in California still with that that idea. I think Vermont did close its doors on it, so I don't hear of it still bubbling up in Vermont. But who knows? Right. Yeah, it will definitely still be out there. But as I as I mentioned just a second ago, I think the Democratic message going forward is probably going to be more of this Medicare for more idea. Um, and trying to maybe fix the parts of the ACA that weren't as successful rather than shifting all the way to the left there for a, a single-payer system, universal health care. So that leads us to Medicaid expansion, which I know doesn't really hit uh, our employers directly, but, but speak to us about that after the midterm elections. Yeah, this is another interesting part when we talk about the ACA and Medicaid expansion uh, one of the results of the midterms was that three states, um, all three deeply red states, are, are, they all voted to expand Medicaid. Those were Utah, Idaho, and Nebraska. So expansion of Medicaid, again, this is an ACA uh, provision that allows states to take additional federal money that was offered to help cover individuals in those states. So overall, with those three new states joining the list, 35 states plus D.C. have expanded. And so this kind of signals perhaps other red states will follow. Um, many red states have been very reluctant on this one. They don't want to be viewed as supporting the ACA or taking federal, federal money. Um, so there's the discussion on whether a state can add in work requirements for those that want Medicaid. We'll have to see how those play out. But the idea is that you know, kind of even red states are opting in on some of this uh, to help cover their state's individuals who may be having a hard time getting coverage elsewhere. How does that impact the employer side? Obviously not directly, but we do talk about this in past, past podcasts, just this general idea of a healthy individual market generally means a more stable overall uh, health insurance market, and that obviously impacts the group market that employers would be in. So I think, um, you know, regardless of your political leanings, if there's a way we can stabilize the individual market, that's only going to help stabilize the group market where employers are. Well, and I think you just hit on the key word is stabilization, and that's where we might find bipartisan support for legislation um, to, to come up with some type of market stabilization uh, bill that impacts that individual market in all the states. So right. that, that is some place that we could see bipartisan support. So... Um, let's circle up now and with a, a, a topic that we hear a lot about, and that's association health plans. Um, get us up to speed on what's happening there. Yeah, so this is an interesting one um, that we saw the DOL put out some rules on association health plans, AHPs, uh, to try and help make it a little bit easier for um, individuals and small groups to come together through an association and obtain group coverage. Um, several states were not very happy about this, um, probably going back to uh, previous decades where they had issues with uh, self-funded MIWAs, especially, that weren't properly funded. 
And so trying to protect their consumers um, and also a lot of regulatory issues when you introduce AHPs. So uh, several states, um, all of them, I believe, were Democratic. Um, the ones that were the first there were Massachusetts and New York, I believe. They immediately filed a uh, suit against those rules. And so we're kind of waiting to see how that will play out. I know recently, Suzanne, you were at a conference where this was discussed. So I'm going to flip the question back to you and ask for insight that you learned from from that. Well, there's, there seems to be a real difference of opinion on who has the stronger argument, and it gets very technical. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets down to this this idea of a Chevron deference in part, and, and that is a standard in the courts that says if there is a statute that's ambiguous, then the federal agency that is in charge of ena- or uh, I- implementing the statute um, should be given deference if their interpretation of the statute is reasonable. And so, um, on the other hand, we have uh, a DOL that had put out prior guidance on AHPs, Association Health Plans, and what constitutes a single employer in that context. Mm-hmm. And we've had those that guidance out for some time and have been living with that, and they're now wanting to change and alter that guidance. And so there's question on whether they have a, a, a valid reason for changing prior guidance. Um, and that was an issue that came up in the Fifth Circuit with a fiduciary rule, and the court found that um, that guidance had been out there too long for them to, to change without a valid reason. And so that's at a very high level, that's where the court is balancing is really uh, the how much deference for one to give to the federal agency and to their prior guidance, mm-hmm. um, which is not has not risen to the, the level of a statute, which which obviously is, is binding. So we will just have to wait and see how the courts come down on that. Some feel that the states have a stronger argument, and others feel like the DOL is pretty solid in, in their authority. So um, it, what would happen if if this the courts found for the states, it kind of blows away any of these AHP final rules that came out? Those are kind of uh, blown by the wayside, and we go back to the old rules. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's a it's an interesting issue, perhaps not directly impacted by midterm elections, uh, but we can see conflicts between regulatory agencies, states, and now with the divided Congress, I think we'll uh, see some of some more of those clashes play out. Sure, and in uh, funding for some of these lawsuits will come through the House. So right, uh, either lack of funding or funding. So something else to watch. Right. But uh, Chase, we appreciate you walking us through these midterm elections and the impact potential on just the ACA in general and employers. And as we like to say, that's that's a wrap. wrap. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. 